Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of Michigan Software Labs, Josh Hurst. Josh built his monster company off the vision to make developing iPhone and Android apps easier for clients. After being chosen for GE's prestigious Edison Engineering Development Program, Josh co-founded Michigan Software Labs in 2010 and has never looked back. He now works on a global scale with all kinds of businesses. Josh has proven to be a leader worth following, so we are pumped to have him on the podcast. Josh, my new friend, thank you for being here today. Hey, thanks, Drew. It's great to be here. Yes, sir. So how did we get into this? Yeah, so Michigan Software Labs uh, started as an idea back in 2010. Uh, my business partner and I, who had known each other socially for a couple of years at that point, um, had this idea. Actually, uh, his wife had the idea. She wanted to be able to go for a run and listen to a local radio station on her iPhone. So it was back when iPhones were starting to be big, apps were kind of starting to kick off a little bit. Um, but there was no way for her to listen to that radio station while she was out and about. And so she asked uh, my business partner, Mark, uh, if he could build an app. And so we kind of partnered together and built the iOS and Android version, and then actually ended up donating that app to the radio station, just kind of off on the side uh, for fun. After that, they started to, they, uh, they put up a logo, uh, all of that kind of stuff for us. And we actually started just getting marketing straight from them. And uh, we told them, you know what, we're just kind of doing this for fun. Don't worry about it. But all of a sudden we had these companies, we had Volvo reach out to us and be like, hey, can you build us an app? And it was an interesting story to like say, Dang. you know, we're just kind of two guys sitting in our basement doing this just for the fun of it. Um, but it really just kind of grew from that. And so we put up a website, uh, started to take some clients in, uh, ran the company part-time for about two years while we both had other jobs. And then after that, uh, started to make a run for it full-time. So what were, what, was, what were the jobs that you were working while you were doing this simultaneously? Yeah, so I was at GE Aviation uh, as a software developer as part of the Edison program that you mentioned earlier. Um, getting to do a rotational program with them, learning about all of the different uh, parts of aviation software from drones to flight control systems and management systems. Uh, really working through that for about two years. And my business partner was uh, working for digital marketing at an education uh, company. Okay. And had you had thoughts before this of starting your own company or did this just kind of appear and you went with it? Uh, this one kind of appeared. Uh, kind of growing up, though, there was always that little bent of entrepreneurship uh, in both of our lives. But in my side, uh, I had a lawn mowing company that I ran in high school with my brother where we were mowing like 20 lawns through the summer. I had a computer repair business. And so there was always some of those kind of things rolling around. Sure. Um, when I finished grad school, um, I didn't expect that it'd be so soon or that it would be something kind of directly in that line. Um, but it was always kind of rolling around at that point. So how did you... What, did, did the skills that you were learning, obviously, you know, through college and then now at GE, were they directly applicable to what you were now doing over here? Or was that a new skill you were learning as you were going? So the, the development side was very much what I learned in college. My undergrad and grad school were in computer science. And so the development, programming and writing apps um, was what I had been training for. And then GE was also writing software. So that part fit really well um, and allowed us to really do this uh early on without getting a lot of other people involved. We were able to both sell the product and, um, and then write it um, and build it for our, our clients. 
but the running the business side and all of the the actual entrepreneur stuff uh, that was more along the lines of having to learn and pick it up as we went, um, just because it hadn't been a focus of mine necessarily in in school. Sure. Why do you think those early companies were seeking you out instead of your your competition when you were just hobbyist? Yeah, I ask that question all the time. I uh, I honestly don't know. No, it was it was a time where it was really early on kind of in the app store. And so anybody that had some credibility in the area um, was starting to get reach. Uh, and so people were interested in anybody that had an app in the, in the app store. I mean, you probably remember those days where there were 500 apps coming out and every new one was this big deal. There was sure. publicized and rose to the top of the list. And so some of it was just recognition from that spot of being in the app store and in a small market. Um, some of it was the relationships that we had already had in the the area that we had started the company and kind of the reach of some of our early clients. Um, and we still see this today, but a lot of it just came from word of mouth where the apps and the the software solutions that we're building for clients are exciting and they want to share that with other people and kind of word just spreads and somebody will eventually ask like, who built that for you? And it's, mm. it just kind of builds from there. What were the those early those early years, the first couple of years, what were some of the meaningful mile markers that you guys passed by? Yeah. So the first kind of early on when we started it, uh, like I said, we built the app for the radio station, just the two of us, um, and kind of picked it up with those early on. Then after the first project or two, where we started to get more traction, we actually started using some outside uh, contractors that we pulled together, either people that we knew socially or just others that were looking for jobs. And so there was, it wasn't a team, but it was a group of people who were kind of working together to, to build those. And so we were able to figure out how that client interaction and getting requirements and figuring out what the users actually needed could work with um, Mark and I kind of running the company and, and interacting with our clients, but then also pulling in that, that group of people, that team, that contractors uh, with us to be able to build and scale, um, even at that really early stage, to do more than, than what we could develop on our own at that point. So that was a big milestone. Um, and then as I went full-time with the company, we got this little tiny office, uh, our first physical office uh, in the basement level of a, a place uh, in, in West Michigan. Um, and that felt like we were big stuff. Now we have an office, we've got an address, uh, and that was a huge milestone, just kind of cementing like, no, this is a legitimate place, a legitimate yeah. company, and we can actually start, start moving forward with that. Yeah. How did you think about taking the leap? Like, was it a difficult decision that you felt like you man, I was a little afraid and I made the best, you know, I just kind of took a gamble or was it not at that point? Was it pretty clear that this is something I should be doing? Looking back, I probably should have been a little bit more scared than I was. Uh, <laughs> it was a little bit, it, it wasn't too bad. So uh, at that point, my wife and I had been married for a couple of years when we had had our, our first, uh, our first daughter. And so we'd been working at GE for a little while and we started to look around and said, you know what? Michigan Labs has legs um, and it's getting to the point where it's getting a little bit too busy to have a family, to work full-time at GE and to run the company. And so the initial idea was like, okay, it's time to kind of wind down Michigan Labs. It was a fun little, fun little thing to play around with. It's time to shut that down. Um, and over a couple months of talking about that and, and starting to look forward to either trying to sell it or just kind of wrap it up and finish up the, the client projects that we had going on, there was a growing realization like, no, we could actually make a run at this and it could be really interesting for us to try and, and do that. And so we started to shift then into saying, okay, well, if we're going to go full-time in it, what does that look like for us to be able to support kind of the, the team and uh, especially our lives um, from our, from me and my partner? 
Um, what does it look like to, to supplement income and all of those types of things. And so we started to look at contracts and ways to kind of balance out some incoming money regularly um, that we could then uh, use to continue to grow the company. And so we were able to find a few software development contracts that they weren't exactly in the direct space that we knew we wanted to be in long-term and the, the engagements, but it was kind of that balance of like, we know we have some income coming in for a little while and we can legitimately make a run at trying to build that up and then start actually hiring a team around that too. Yeah. So after that leap, what was that like for you? What was that, what was that next year like after you went all in on this? It was really interesting. So the, the office that I worked out of uh, in Grand Rapids had about a thousand people. Uh, the GE office did a thousand people. And I remember it, it was, uh, it was tax day. It was my last day at GE or no, my first day at, at Michigan Labs full time. And so basically on a Friday, I walk out of this office with a thousand people around me. I'm uh, relatively new to the company looking around and you've got all of the, the people that you've worked with for the past two years. And then day one at Michigan labs, it's literally me sitting in the basement by myself on a phone call with one of our clients, but it's like, there's no one else. It's just me. And that, wow. that was when it really set it. We had the desk that we had bought secondhand sitting in the basement uh, office and then away we go. Um, and so it, it was a little bit of a shock of like, what does it actually, what do we just do? Uh, and then what does it mean to, to start from, from nothing really, rather than having all of these support systems that, that were in place um, at previous jobs or at, at companies where they were pretty well established. And so yeah. that first year was, uh, was figuring that out. Um, we worked for about eight months uh, where it was just me. And then we hired our first software developer about eight months after I had left full time. And so started to grow from there, pick up client contracts. Um, and within about a year and a half, we had already outgrown the, the, the initial space that we had had leased and had to move into a new space to kind of grow the team from there. Wow. So during that initial period, your partner, was he, was he still working his job full-time and, and the he was. only support you going full-time? Yep, exactly. So we would spend a lot of time together um, on client interactions and on, he, especially on the sales side, side and helping do some of the initial project kickoff. Um, but then once it got a little bit more operational and us actually developing the apps for our clients, it would transition over pretty heavily to me. Um, as well as managing our, our team and contractors and other people that we were pulling into from that point. Um, so we did that for uh, a couple of years before he came over full-time at that point too. Gotcha. Well, what I always think about in those early years is just the amount of pressure and the amount of stress that, that you're under wandering into the unknown, you know, still trying to prove, prove out an idea and having to probably pivot a few times. And now you've got other people starting to come on board and you're now realizing, man, I feel responsible for them as well. But that pressure doesn't go away. It just changes in different seasons. So it makes me just curious overall, how do you, how do you respond to pressure? Everybody responds to it differently. You know, what does it look like if it gets your number? And then what does it look like for you? What have you found that has helped, you know, live under the pressure sustainably? Yeah. So especially early on in those years, the initial pressure really was, can we deliver what we committed to for our clients? And can we do that well? So I have a lot of um, memories of sitting in that office, like looking at what we had said we were going to do and wondering, I'm not sure how we're going to do this. And it wasn't so much from a, I don't know how to write the code or I don't know what to do on the technology side, but how to actually get the outcomes that they needed. So yeah. that pressure hits hard. Um, and there, especially early on the times when that happened, it was kind of this, this gripping pressure. And often I would have to take a breath and remind myself, you know what, we're going to figure out a way to get through this. We've got a team around us. I've got my business partner that I can talk to. And a lot of times it was just getting up and walking around uh, and trying to clear my head at that point. And then talking about it with other people, because yeah. that pressure and that stress just kind of cannonballs, uh, out of control 
if it, if it stays in my head. And so it really is voicing the concerns and the fears that come along with it. And then recognizing that no matter what, we're going to figure out a way to get through it kind of as a team and as a group too. Um, yeah. And that, that really helps relieve it and bring it, bring it to that spot where it's a little bit more manageable and a little bit more realistic too. Cause it, it can build up so quickly in your head um, pretty easily. Yeah, absolutely. It's that, that pressure buildup. I like that way you're, you're phrasing that, but we can often so fall into the trap, whether as a leader or sometimes as a, as a male and unknowingly the, 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 the typecast we feel like we're supposed to play that we internalize it all. And it just is a mounting, you know, pressure that almost immediately either rebalances or, or, or at least depressurizes when you start to let others in, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And I think, especially for those of us who are in those roles where that pressure comes on, sometimes it, it feels appropriate because you recognize the weight that's on your shoulders. But what I found really early on was that when it gets to be too much or when I am bearing it, all myself, uh, I actually stop performing as well as I need to. And so yeah. not only is it this, I, I can't necessarily carry it myself, but I shouldn't because that's not fair to the, the rest of the team or to our clients, because that starts to result in a lot of those subpar performance or just not even doing as good of work as we could, because it, it can become overwhelming in those cases. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, let's say, let's say stress or pressure or busyness hits you if you were to make a mistake let's say it's once a year if you were to make a mistake what kinds of mistakes does your personality make so for me um, especially coming from an engineering background it's really easy for me to fall in the habit of just saying i'll do it myself um, mm -hmm. and now that we have a team around us um, that's not really a good answer anymore but it's a we get in the pressure i go heads down and i will figure out the problem and oftentimes i i get there eventually it may not be near as well or um, near as good as what our team could come up with, but I kind of go into this, this, I'm going to figure it out myself and I'm going to, I'm just going to grit my teeth and get through it. Whether that's not talking about it with others, or even just saying, I'm not going to leave this computer screen until I figure out what needs to happen, or I, I can't give myself a break. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is my go-to uh, weakness of when that pressure does come of, of kind of retracting into myself and not, um, not letting others help or not even talking about it with others too. Yeah, well, that, uh, well said. You know, the reason why I said what trap does your personality fall into is because it's not a you thing. It's often a wiring that mm -hmm. we're going to make errors on one side or the other. And I've found it's usually one or two categories. People will either overdo or underdo. You know, if they're if they're not if they're if they're making a mistake, like my personality will underdo, where I get kind of avoidant. And sometimes I know I'm doing it and sometimes I don't know I'm doing it, but I'll notice my email inbox filling up. I'll notice I'm delaying decisions to make and I'm starting to like push away the pressure by avoiding and then other personalities overdo it where they won't leave their computer screen, where they're working longer hours, where they're, they're kind of white knuckling everything and it's not good or bad. It's just either it's like opposite gutters. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that's really interesting, depending on kind of what problem it is to solve too, because especially as the company grows, it becomes easier to avoid the problem uh, yeah. because so much of it is it's either interpersonal or it's relational. And there isn't just that way that I can grit my teeth and get through it. It's I have to talk to these people or I have to do this, this interaction. And uh, often for me, that's that's easier for me to avoid rather than than kind of grit and, and over interact in some of those cases. Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. I haven't thought about it that way. That's interesting. So in some sense, it's like, yeah, I want to avoid the discomfort or the unknown of how do I pass this off yeah. uh, so that I can just grit my teeth and do it myself. What's what's the ramification of that? 
for the avoidance of the problem, obviously, if, if it's something where you know all the information that you need to know, or it's just a quick conversation, often the problem will build even more for me. Mm. And so if it's, a, if it's a tough conversation that has to happen, or it's a decision that should be made now, but I don't like the answer, or I don't think it's the perfect solution, often it's easy to kind of put those off. And it just snowballs more and more, at least in my world, so that if I would have done something about it today, uh, it would be a lot easier than when I have to do something about it next week. Um, and often yeah. it has better results, even if it's not the 100% perfect solution or if it's not what everybody likes. It's uh, it's better to solve it today. So, yeah, so true. I mean, again, from an underdoing side, for me, an avoidant kind of personality at points, I had to realize it was kind of like uh, like a credit card or debt where, hey, man, there is a difference in me paying it today versus tomorrow. Right. Like yep. the longer I wait to do the thing I know I needed to do, it's accrued interest. Like the problem, the cost to me is going to be bigger. And that helped that sometimes that kind of helps snap me out of that, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Especially if you have, if you can visualize how bad it's going to be, if you have to have the conversation later. And I think that's somewhat of what experience will do for us too, as we get uh, into it longer and we understand what the ramifications are. But well, that is a really strong way of saying like last time I did this and put it off for two weeks, remember the mess I got myself into. Yeah. Wouldn't you rather just solve it now and deal with that initial discomfort rather than letting it continue to snowball and then dealing with a lot of discomfort than having pretty significant, um, sometimes pretty significant ramifications for others too at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I always joke about this because I think many people can relate to it, but I got a text. It's probably nine months ago or something. I got a text at the end of a work day. I was literally just going outside to check the mail, and I looked down. I got a text from my dad, who's great. We have a great relationship, but I also know when I'm in trouble, you know. <laughs> and I'm and I'm 36 years old yep. with three kids, and I see a text that says, "Hey, when you're alone, can you give me a call for a second? And my personality, I was already starting to go. I'm going to take a lap around the neighborhood before I respond to this. I need to think about what I might have done. Maybe I'll push them off till next week. And I caught myself going, like, oh, that's that trap I fall into in these smaller ways. And I was like, man, you're going to be miserable. From now yes. to whenever you call, you're going to be miserable. So before I even left the driveway, I just picked up the phone. And, and, and before my fear could get a hold of me, I just called him, you know. And I just have, and it was fine. Like, yes, there was actually some conflict we needed to work through, but we worked through it. And after 10 minutes later, I was back to having a normal night feeling at peace. And it was like a leadership lesson for me. Like, you know, you need to have a, a, you know, a tough conversation with someone on your team or you and your wife need to discuss something. I'm like, why am I protracting this, this misery? Right. We, we could just like call right now and we can figure out what the deal is going on Yeah, exactly. and deal with it, you know? Yeah. And they end up building on each other. So if you've got like even three of those things sitting on and then you look around, not in isolation, neither of them is like super heavy, but yes. now you've got three of those types of things sitting in like, well, no wonder I'm stressed or no wonder I can't really work. There's just that much going on. We have one of our project teams. Uh, we do our daily standups with within the project team here. And one of the project teams has started adopting um, the the practice of asking each other like what's the one thing that you know you need to do today that you don't want to do and uh, that's just what how they start their day out and so they ask that and then everybody has to go around the circle and say like here's the one thing i'm avoiding on the project whether it's a particularly hard review that i have to do for code or this function is really tough or a conversation with a client is and they share those and then they start holding themselves accountable to those hard things um, and i think that's just an awesome way of using the community and the relationships around yeah. you to do that 
because that really, I, I think all of us struggle with those, those tough things. Um, and that's a, it's a cool way for them to, to work through like, that together. Is that kind of like an eat the frog exactly. idea? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, do they, all, uh, let's just dive into that for a second. So around kind of how your team uh, performs and functions, what are some of those philosophies or systems that, that you guys have in place right now? It sounds like eat the frog, do the, the worst thing, you know, thing you don't want to do the most that's important in the morning. Is there yep. anything else that kind of guides the, the rhythms or the performance of the teams? Yeah. So when we started the company early on, we try, or we, we built the company early with, with a group of people, like I mentioned, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a team, but it was people pulling together um, to do the same type of work, but really without any of that personal relationship. Um, it, it purely was a working relationship. And as we got deeper into that and started seeing the value that could come from the personal relationship being paired with the work relationship, we really started to push hard uh, as a whole company into saying uh, we're really better together. That's one of our core values. And so as a, a consultancy, we've got a lot of different projects going on, uh, I think, and a lot of different project teams that are each doing their own thing. But we really push hard into this idea that um, as a team, we're better when we aren't together. And so that's together um, in time being spent, that's together in physicality sometimes of actually being in the same office and, and working together. And so a lot of our general rhythms are built into that way of saying like, how do we make sure that we have the trust? How do we make sure that we have the relationships so that we can hold each other accountable so that we can help each other grow so that we can celebrate um, when we're doing well? Um, and that togetherness is a big piece of of who we are uh, as Michigan Labs too. Yeah. So, is there anything in particular that you guys have found to be helpful in in promoting or protecting that that trust and that relationship? For a long time, uh, we were able to do daily standups with the whole company. Um, and as we grew, we we were able to keep that as part of our operating rhythms. Where to the point we had about thirty five people on a daily standup every day. Wow. Um, and through COVID, that was really helpful too because sometimes that was the only time that people had the chance to see one another if they weren't on the same project team or in different areas of the business. And um, when we were, when we were remote in COVID, that was sometimes the only time that we got to see one another. And so we, we really push hard into that, recognizing that relationships uh, are built sometimes just by spending time with one another and figuring out ways to do that well. And so that's, that's time um, and standups every day. Uh, we've since kind of scaled that back a little bit more so that we can make sure that the time being spent is, is focused and quality in that those areas in the project teams. Um, but really looking at, at what those areas are where we can spend time. And so stand-ups, um, we do team lunches every two weeks where uh, the company will buy lunch and get together and, and mm. whoever wants to can come and, and eat and hang out together. Really no work talk allowed. It's just catching up with one another and really trying to build into those personal relationships so that when we do work together, um, we have that relational trust um, and that opportunity to, to kind of see each other as, as humans rather than just cogs in a wheel uh, yeah. working next to each other. So back to the daily stand-ups in case anybody's listening that would want to know more about that. What did they used to look like up to about 35 people? And what do they look yeah. like now? Um, so when we started the company, there were, uh, this was when we started hiring full-time team members. Um, we were generally working on the same project together. And so it was your typical agile standup of what did you do yesterday? What are you going to be doing today? Uh, and then what blockers do you have? And so for a long time, uh, probably up until there was 10 or 15 people at the company, we were able to do that daily um, and get into some of the nitty gritty of what happened yesterday. People were able to offer suggestions on maybe some of the blockers that were there um, and be able to help one another and use it as just a small way of, of some mentorship and some support with one another. 
once we got above like 15, 20 people, we started to move more into this idea of project teams doing standups. And so you still could hear about what a different project team was doing or maybe some of the struggles they were having. Um, but it was more of that project team interaction rather than specific individual interaction. And that that scaled really well for a while too. Again, through the remote portion of COVID for us, um, it was just a great way for everybody to stay up to date on what projects were happening and also a really nice spot for us to do quick announcements in the morning, just kind of keeping that together. Um, but then recently, actually over the past couple of months, we've started doing uh, twice a week huddles instead. It was getting to the point where just from the size of the company and the amount of time that was being spent in the standups wasn't um, really being well used because you couldn't get into the enough specifics sure. and there were just too many people to talk. So the relational piece wasn't as strong there. And so now on the, our in-office days, we do the huddles where we have four slots and people can sign up and do a quick demo, just generally three to four minutes of demo of what they're working on or something new that they learned. Um, that's where we do our leadership team uh, updates as well. And so we'll talk about what the leadership team has been working on and maybe any strategic priorities. And then our business operations team will also kind of give any announcements and stuff during that too. And so we still get about 20 minutes, two times a week, just as a whole company with a pretty light agenda of just us coming together. Okay, so you have twice a week, 20 minutes of the whole company tuning in. Yep. And are, are the project teams themselves still having some form of of weekly or daily or, uh, kind of rhythm? Yeah, yep. so the project teams themselves still do a daily rhythm. And that we, I mean, that still has the benefit of, of what we saw early on. Generally, our project teams are three to five people, and so it's pretty quick. Um, but it's what blockers do I have? What things uh, could I use help on? Um, and then holding each other accountable and encouragement through there. And that happens every day um, through the whole uh, the whole week. We have been experimenting a little bit more with doing some of those asynchronously. And so we have like a Slack bot that you can type it in rather than having to do a call. And so each project team is kind of on their own to figuring out what format works best in their context, depending on yeah. team size and depending on schedules and all of that. Um, but there is that daily check-in that everybody gets to have so that they, they talk to their project teams regularly too. How, was, how has COVID changed your world in terms of working in the office? That sounds like there's a little bit of both now, working from home, working in the office. I'm just curious, was that already how it is? And it's, you know, nothing's really changed or is, are things changing and you're trying to figure out what to do? Yeah, we had a really flexible schedule pre-COVID. Um, where we, we really prize that in-person relationship and we said it's important to us, but we also understand that people have lives outside of work. And so pre-COVID on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, it was the expectation that you're in the office unless you've got something going on. So if people had a doctor's appointment or they need to be home for um, like a contractor coming over or something like that, they were able to do that. Um, and some people would actually do quick vacations and if they had a travel day or whatever, they could figure out uh, logistics around that. But then Wednesdays, were more of the, if you want to work from home at a regular basis, Wednesday is the day that, that you can do that. And so pre-COVID, we actually had most of the company wasn't, was working remotely on Wednesdays already. Um, that really helped ease the transition for us into full-time remote work that we went through during COVID. And um, we had the infrastructure already set up for it and had some of the rhythms already there. Um, but obviously COVID was a, a much um, more intense version of that. Yeah, and then as we've started to come out of our full-time remote portion of COVID, we've been we've moved to in-office expectations for Monday, Tuesday, Thursdays. So Wednesday, Fridays are kind of back to that idea now of if you want to work remotely on those days, um, you're more than welcome to. 
And we have this concept of on the in-person days, uh, we pri prioritize in-person meetings. We try to schedule the things that we think are best done in person. And if there is somebody who's remote for a doctor's appointment or for sick kids or whatever the case is, they can still join via Zoom or some other system. Um, but then on Wednesdays and Fridays, we go full remote first. And so generally on those days, if there are meetings scheduled, which we try to keep to a minimum, um, Zoom is the preferred platform. And even those of us in the office generally interact from our own desks or from individual rooms rather than kind of the, the conference rooms, just so that we don't um, disincentivize that opportunity to work remotely on those days. Yeah. So in the process of going to full remote to quasi now, you know, some some hybrid, has anything surprised you? Like I assumed something would be like this and it wasn't, or I assumed it'd go this way and it didn't, whether it went better or worse. Like has anything surprised you in the, the actual doing of it? I think early on in COVID, uh, not necessarily in COVID, uh, the remote portion of COVID, but kind of midway through when we started to have some people back in the office and some people that were still at home, it was really interesting getting some empathy for those who were remote um, calling into a, a group uh, that had some, that, that were all in the same conference room. And so that was a little bit of a surprising side to see how ostracizing or how kind of lonely it could be when you were just one or two people calling into that group. Yeah. Um, even when you knew everybody in that room and you had pretty strong relationships, uh, for those that were at home full time, it was, it was surprising to see like just how big of an effect that had. Um, and so that was where one of the things that we did, uh, trying to figure out what the kind of that remote in-person version looked like so that we, we could continue to still feel together as a team and, and move together through that. And we made sure like even when we did our all hands meetings, when we were in the kind of that hybrid mode where there were some people who were still fully remote, uh, making sure that we we set up everything so that everybody was at a level playing field um, through the whole time. Yeah, you may be talking about this or may not, but as my experience has been, you know, I do so many trainings and coaching sessions and that kind of stuff with with companies and teams that if it's many people in one space and whether it's me or somebody else on the camera, it just feels less personal because they're all sharing one camera and they're sharing one microphone and it's even hard to hear like the crosstalk. But if everyone has their own computer screen, like even if they're all in the same office, but they can shut their door and they're on their own computer screen, it feels different. It's like, I see your face, your face, your face. I hear your microphone, your microphone, your microphone. Yeah. And I prefer it that way. So I've had a few being like, Hey, can you call in? We're all going to be at this conference room, whatever. I'm like, if at all possible, no. Yeah. I would either like to be there or I'd like you all on your own computer screens because it's just, it's nerve wracking, man. You can't, you can't really pick up on what's fully going on in the room. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, exactly. That's what we saw. You've got that idea of like, there was probably some sort of conversations. Everybody was heading over to the conference room that you were left out of, not intentionally, but yeah. you, you weren't there as everybody was kind of joking and walking in. And then you've got the same thing as you leave too, if everybody's talking about what's going on that evening or whatever. Um, and it does, it does feel, yeah, lonely. Um, and it, it, it just makes it that much harder to have real personal interactions when it's one or two people that are outside of the room. Um, and this was a great uh, experience for us as well to, to see what our clients sometimes felt like too, who might be calling into um, calls with us and figuring out and building up that empathy muscle too, for those who may not even have as good of video systems as we do. Um, how can we really make them feel comfortable when interacting with, with our team? Sure. I want to ask the same question, but I want to back up a little bit and go back into your story. So you've been around since 2010. 
means you've got about 11 years, right, of now entrepreneur business leading experience. Has anything, as you look back at that overarching 10 or 11 years and all the things you've been through, mile markers you've hit, punches in the gut you've taken, does anything emerge as like big surprises? Like that, this was a surprise to me about this whole journey. It's a great question. I think the people component of running a company was a surprise at how much, how important it is, but also how much of my effort and really the organizational effort uh, goes into making a company well-functioning. Um, naive engineer coming right out of school. It's like, oh, everything's a technical problem and I can, I can solve this with a technical hammer, yeah. right? Um, and for the first couple of years, especially when we're on the smaller side and when we were very focused on, on some of those client problems, it was relatively easy for me to pull out my, my technical hammer uh, and use that to solve the problem. As the company has grown, as my role shifted, and I think really as the whole, our whole team has shifted, we've really realized how much intentionality has to go into the people side of the company both from maintaining relationships and building them, but then also even from our client interactions of how recognizing the person on the other side of the, the table, of the client that we get to partner with, um, how much there's that piece in addition to the software solution that we're trying to build. Um, I think that would be one of the major surprises. Uh, it's made it really fun and it's always something new to learn, uh, yeah. but uh, it's, it, it's been a surprise. But it's weighty. That, that, uh... it, that's the other part is like, it's not just complex. It's like emotionally weighty. Like you carry it, you know? Yeah. It's sometimes easy. It was easy for me to go home at the end of the day and leave a technical problem uh, at, at my, at my desk. Right. Cause yeah. you're not sitting in front of your computer. You're not doing whatever. You're not writing the document, whatever the case is. But when it becomes a relational or a people um, thing that weight follows you through and you recognize how I'm, important it is because you're actually interacting with others and making decisions and interactions that affect their lives too. Um, this isn't an on-off switch where we can turn on our work persona and, and do our work thing and then turn it off when we leave for the day. And our team doesn't have that on-off switch. And so yeah. the decisions that we make here of how people are treated at, uh, at the office, how the team interactions go, I mean, that, that, that weighs on us all, right? And so that yeah. weightiness is recognizing the responsibility um, and the excellence that I think that we need to do to serve our teams well through that. Do you have any particular perspective or philosophy that helps you carry that weight well, right? Because we could, we could turn it off in a way that we kind of get cold hearted almost as a response to like, I can't take the pressure of it or it hurts too much. People do that all the time in relationships where you hurt me and so I shut down or we can overtake it on where like, man, it's just really eating our lunch, you know, like can't shake it, can't focus at dinner with the kids and whatever, because this problem's gnawing at me. Has anything helped you navigate that? I'm sure no one's got it perfect, but just a little better. Yeah. If you had a, uh, a perfect solution, I'd love to hear it because it is, no. it is a struggle, right? Um, yeah. I think for me, what's been helpful is recognizing the importance of it, but not overemphasizing that, if it makes sense. Yeah. And realizing that if I'm genuinely doing my best day to day, um, at some level, that's really all I can give, right? And so recognizing kind of the same way that we talked about earlier in the, the interview about this idea, like not pushing too hard into the problem and just kind of gritting your teeth and getting through it, 
I think it's the same thing as you interact mm. with others too, of saying like, I could grit my teeth and try to think about this and really make the solution work out in my head. Um, but often that actually doesn't solve anything. What solves the problem is making sure that I'm well rested, that I'm enjoying time with my family, that uh, I'm in a good mental space and saying like, to do that, I need to take care of myself just as much as I need to take care of the rest of the team. That's an easy thing to, to say right to say, now, yeah. and it's harder to put into practice. Um, but the more that I can remind myself of those times of if I'm super stressed, I'm not going to react well the next day when I need to do something. And so saying like, this is actually for the good of us all, if we can find what that balance is and find how to draw those lines and then reminding myself of what works over and over again, whether that is a good dinner with the family or spending some time journaling or going for a run in the morning, all of those kinds of things, just reminding yeah. myself it worked last time. You should do it again rather than letting it spiral out of control. Yeah, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, the the trap I think we fall into is I'll rest when this is done. Like, in or, and even like in order for me to rest or recover or whatever, I've got to take care of this first. And the counterintuitive part is, no, in order to take care of this, you've got to rest, recover, you've got to take care of yourself. you got to put the oxygen mask on you first before you can put the oxygen mask on the situation and that's tough to believe in the moment because for some reason it's flipped. Like our instincts tell us, nah, dude, you can't sleep, you can't rest, you can't enjoy. Like that's a big one. You can't have joy yeah. until this mile marker is reached or until this problem or crisis is solved. And it actually makes the problem and the crisis worse and you had no joy in the process, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's some of that that we get from our families growing up of like just put in the effort and work yeah. hard and you'll succeed. Um, and I think there's a lot of good things that come from it, but there does have to be that balance of like, no work's always going to be there. And I think doing meaningful work is in and of itself is a calling, um, but work's always going to be there. And so to do that, well, you have to figure out what this ongoing version of rest and joy in your life is. Otherwise you're going to end up burnt out and then nobody's going to be in a good spot for it. Yeah. And we don't even realize, we don't recognize the diminishing returns. Right. Like when you've played that game long enough, you just assume you're operating optimally. You know, I've, I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, but you notice how Elon Musk six years ago was bragging about sleeping three hours a night and sleeping on the factory floor. He now brags about sleeping eight to nine hours a night because he said he ran the data and he, he was suboptimal, you know, and it's like sometimes you got to run the data and go, actually, that's not getting me the result I thought it was getting me. I was wearing this badge of honor that, look, I'm sleeping on the factory floor. I'm working as hard as harder than everybody else. But is it getting the results you want? And I think we have to do that sometimes and even step back and go, me leaning in right now might be making this worse. Yeah. So I had a team meeting. You know, I'll, you've been vulnerable. I'll be vulnerable as well. I had, had a leadership team meeting with my, my guys uh, a few weeks ago, and I just found myself unusually, like, uh, hot, like, worked up. And that's unlike me. And I was – even processing in the moment, I don't think I, I'm warranted to be this frustrated. And I couldn't stop my face from showing it, you know. And it was the second time in three days I'd been that way, where over the weekend something had happened personally and I was unusually amped about it. And finally, one of the people stopped and said, Drew, are you pissed at us? And I said, I'm, very, I'm feeling very upset right now, but I don't want to talk about it. And they're like, why? And I said, because I don't think it has to do with this. Like, I think whatever's going on, it, 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 I'm making a big deal of it. So I was like, if you guys are cool with it, I'd like to just like take a few days, figure out what's really going on. And if there is something we need to talk about, fine. 
And sure enough, like it was deeper, it was different, it was more about outside of life than it was this, and I needed to kind of work through some of that stuff. And then I came back and had a much more like, hey, that did frustrate me a little bit, but it was, it did not piss me off. It that yeah. was not the issue, you know. But I could just had this instinct like, if I dive in right now, I'm about to make a mountain out of what should be a molehill, and I need to just kind of step back for a second. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Uh, for me, a lot of times I like to think that I have those things under control and that I can keep my poker face or I can kind of right. detach what's going on elsewhere. And I think especially as we lead teams that get to know us more and more, they can read that better than I would like. Uh, and often to that question of what your team asked you of like, are you pissed at us? It's actually, no, I'm not angry at you. Or if I am, it's just this little thing that I shouldn't be that angry about. But if yeah. I don't vocalize it, they're going to assume that they're doing something wrong or that I, something is wrong with me. Um, and I, I think that gets to a level of transparency that we are called to interacting with our team of like, it's okay for me to be frustrated. It's okay for yeah. you to be frustrated. Share why you're frustrated or share kind of what's going on. I don't need all the details, but at least just say like, hey, I've got something going on. I may not be completely optimal right now. And that's okay. None of us always are. Yeah. But at least that transparency of sharing a little bit goes a long way in, in stopping others from reading intentions where I don't actually want intentions to be read into. Exactly. And that's the reason I said something. When they, they, they asked me an honest question and I was like, I'm going to be honest, but I, 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 I can already tell, I can already tell you, I don't think it's about this. Yep. And then of course they still followed up and we're like, are you sure it wasn't me? And I said, I can already tell this has very little to do with anything that you guys said or did. I think this is, you know, something perturbing me at a deeper level. And it was it, my throwback. I was just remembering premarital counseling like 11 years ago and our counselor saying, Hey, if you're ever making a bigger deal about something than the actual issue, then that issue isn't the problem. Right. So they're like, if you freak out about clothes left on the floor or whatever, it's not about the clothes on the floor. And I was in here going, no one has said something to make me this mad, you know? And I don't even remember what the thing was, but I was like, oh, okay, guys. I'll talk. If we need to talk, we'll talk. But like, I think this is just something bigger going on. Uh, and that was freeing for them because they've started to use that some, like this last Friday in our team meeting, I just stopped the conversation. I was like, you know, this guy, Harrison, are you okay? And he was like, he was like man, I think I woke up pissed. And I haven't been able to get out of it all day. And he goes, it's not you, I promise. And then I relaxed. The whole rest of the conversation, I just relaxed. I was like, cool, Harrison doesn't have to change his face. He can still be whatever. Like, it has nothing to do with us. And so we just plowed on. Yeah, and I think especially in, in our remote world that's becoming increasingly more common, that, that transparency and that um, conversation becomes that much more important because it's so much harder to get a read on where people are actually at Yeah. that. And so we have to be better about vocalizing that. We have to be better about asking people where they're at. And then again, you don't need all the details, but you're nope. sharing like, hey, this isn't me uh, or this isn't related to this or whatever the case is. Yeah. And I think that that becomes huge. Yeah. I don't need to know why you woke up pissed. I just, all I need to know is whether we need to have a conversation or not. Yep. Exactly. And if, and if we don't, then you, man, carry on. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? Exactly. <laughs> carry on. Good luck. Good luck, spouse. Uh, hope, yeah. Hopefully this goes well later. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, man. Uh, well, let's get into our lightning round questions, and I'll let you get back to your day. Thank you for making time with us today. All right, so question number one. These are five questions we've asked every founder on here. Uh, it starts with this. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this the whole time. So that, that one message would be, we're better when we work together. Um, and working together requires trust and transparency and relationship. And if we can figure out how to do that well as a team, 
um, there's really nothing that can stop us from serving our clients and from serving and making an impact on the world around us. And so that togetherness, that relationship, that trust, uh, that is what I, I ingrain, I look to ingrain on our team. It's beautiful. It's, it's clear that you guys actually value that. It's not just words on a wall, but something you've, you've lived by. All right. Question number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Early on, we got the advice that, um, the financials and the business model is really important, but ultimately that if you're doing the right thing and serving the right people and making sure you stay focused on those things, uh, the results and the growth uh, will follow from that. And in our case, that's worked out to be uh, really great advice. I know that's not always the case, um, but for us, it's been, it's been a little bit freeing to say if we're serving well, if we're making sure that we're taking care of what we need to, um, that growth and that the, um, the, the client will kind of take care of itself. Uh, it's, it's been awesome to see. Yeah. Uh, how about the worst? The worst uh, is we got this early on was if you're not growing, you're dying. There's this uh, idea that people um, elevate growth. And for a lot of companies and, and in the context that I heard that it was um, revenue growth of like, hey, if you're not really, really putting it to the screws on revenue side, then um, the company is going to slow down or you're going to die. And um, we've took that and I kind of reframed that to say, I think there's more growth than just revenue or just headcount. And I think there are there is some truth to saying you need to continue to grow and move forward. But that growth and that that progress can look very different depending on what the phase of the company is, and the stage that comes along with that. Absolutely. All right. Number three, what causes you the most stress or worry currently leading your organization? So we've, we've had significant headcount growth uh, over the years, and it's been really cool to see our team take that on and figure out what their role is and, and how to interact with one another. Um, the, the stress that comes from that, though, is making sure that we keep the relational focus as that kind of diffuses out. There's more and more people that are getting involved, and there's team leads that are kind of growing up through the organization. And just making sure that they get that concept of like, we really need to do this together. It kind of goes back to the first mm -hmm. question, but we need to do this together to do it well. And that becomes harder and harder, more stressful, more stressful when I can't have that conversation with every person every day Yeah, uh, yeah. From, from the growth that we've gotten to. Yeah, everybody talks about that. It's, it's common to the territory where at some point you get culture diffusion, right? Where it's so big and you're at the middle. It's like, how do you pass it on where it's it's saturated all the way to the edges that people really understand who we are and how we, you know, how we operate. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Question number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? So we don't have any specific metrics around this, but when we think about what we want Michigan labs to be known for, we think about, we want to be best in class in our um, team engagement and um, yeah, team engagement and, um, togetherness but then also the flip side is we want to serve our clients with best-in-class service and so that's kind of a two-pronged approach where we continue to push really hard into saying in in our industry we want to serve our clients really well and not let that come at the expense of our team and vice versa love it and then question number five is our fun creative question if you could hop into a delorean you get to go back to your past but the rule is you can only tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window when would you go back and what would that message be to your younger self? When would I go back? That's a great question. Uh, probably a year after starting Michigan Labs would be when I would go back to that point because I don't want what I say to myself to scare myself from stopping uh, starting the company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a year after the company uh, started, I would go back and I would say, 
uh, get used to being uncomfortable uh, in every position that you're going to be in from here on out. It's going to cause you to grow, but it's going to be really hard through that. And so get used to that discomfort and figure out how to, how to focus on turning that into that growth uh, going mm. forward. It's beautiful. Josh, man, this has been so fun. I have truly enjoyed this conversation. I know it's been uh, of immense value to me and I'm sure to our audience as well. So, man, really thank you for being here today. Man, it's been great being with you, Drew. Appreciate the conversation and getting to share a little bit of our story. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Awesome. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.